The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Um, you could probably open to Ezra. That's where most of the passages are coming from if you want to follow along in your Bible. If not, you have the verse packet um, there. Uh, at the back of your packet is, is the verses that we're going to cover tonight. Um, mostly out of Ezra, one out of, uh, a couple out of Haggai, and, um, and on. So you could follow the verse packet if you want to, but if you want to open to the book of, of Ezra, that would be good too. Um, if you see in the very back of the packet, I've got two, Bibli- two sources on the bibliography there. Um, so both of these are, are really good. If you, if you, if you like history, for one, th- these would be a, uh, a a history book essentially to keep. Shan- Shannon's got one in her one one copy with her. Um, yeah, uh, you can hold it up if you want to hold it up. That's not the cover I've got, but that's that's one of them right there. Turn it around the other way so people can see it. The one that I've got highlighted in the bibliography is where the vast majority of this stuff this stuff came from. It's it's called Kingdom of Priests and it was written by uh, a DTS professor named Eugene Merrill. Uh, he's very good and, and very thorough. These books, uh, the other one, F.F. Bruce, was where last week's came from. Th- those are good. That one's a good two. Uh, I can't tell you which one I like more. They're both really good. But the, the reason I like some of those is they're, they're Old Testament history. But what I find them really helpful for is if you're reading through the Old Testament, maybe you're in some who knows what book in the Old Testament, and it's sometimes not making sense to you, you can go to the back of one of those books, and they've got the scripture index back there, and you can find, typically you can find your passage, and when you flip to that page in Merrill's book or in F.F. Bruce's book, you will find him describing the historical setting that that passage occurs in, and what's going on in the broader landscape, and some of it is, you probably don't care about, you know, what's going on with the Hittites is probably not first on your list of things that you care about. But sometimes it can give you a little bit better understanding of why that passage is written that way or what's going on that it gives you just a little bit more insight. It's kind of like a commentary slash history book at the same time. So if you, if you like that kind of thing, if you're like into World War II or something like that, that those kind of books may be really helpful for you when you read. Sometimes they give a lay of the land, uh, geography and that kind of stuff too that, that's, that can be helpful. Um, so those books are really good. And another that I would recommend, and I don't have a bibliography for right now, is a good, um, like a Bible encyclopedia. And these are all, these are all things that they're going to cost a little bit of money to get. Uh, but those uh, encyclopedias of the Bible can be really helpful because you stumble across these names that you've never heard of, cities you've never heard of, places you've never heard of, whatever you can just, it'll, there's an index in there. You just go and look that thing up and it'll give a, a little, sometimes they're really long, and sometimes it's a little paragraph on who this person is, and where they occur in the Bible, and what's significant about them, and kind of throw some things there together, which are really good. Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible is one that I consult a lot, um, so I've got several of them. I, w- I would recommend Baker's to you. It's, it's really pretty good. I could not tell you. I bought that a long time ago. I couldn't even tell you how much it costs. I, I, they're probably not super cheap, but um, they're really helpful if you're reading the Bible and you're just, you're not getting it, you're not understanding what's going on. 
those can be really helpful resources for you. They're not ones that you're going to put on your nightstand and just read through, all right? That's not the kind of book this is. It's going to be referenced. So, um, but that said, I use a lot of these to prepare, especially as we go through the, the Old Testament. Uh, this doesn't come off the top of my head. Um, this is very much sourced from these places, and so we've been going through them. Since we've been going through the Old Testament, we have been going through a lot of Merrill's book. We've been going through a lot of other ones, too. Um, but so if you've been here from the beginning, you've probably gotten a lot of it as, as we've gone along, but um, still very helpful, hopefully. hopefully. Um, so as we look at what we've been talking about over the last uh, couple of weeks now, remember we've been seeing that the children of Israel uh, have gone into exile, and we, we left them a long time ago in exile in Babylon, and then we started revisiting them a couple of weeks ago where we saw Ezekiel has this vision of a temple. The temple was destroyed by Babylon. And the children of Israel were taken out into captivity. But then uh, Ezekiel, who is in captivity and is a prophet, gets a vision of a rebuilt temple. And he sees that God's basically telling him it, it won't always be this way. And sure enough, at least in relatively short order to that, um, Babylon begins to experience some troubles. And one of those troubles comes when the Median army and the Persian army meet each other on the battlefield. Up to that point, Babylon had been allies with Persia because Medea was growing in the distance and was kind of posing a threat. And so Babylon formed a, a temporary alliance with Persia, and they found out just how temporary that alliance was when Persia went in and defeated Medea. And Cyrus, who was the king of Persia at the time and leading a much smaller nation and a much smaller army, went up against Medea and beat them, defeated them so soundly that he became king of both Medea and Persia. So that he uni instead of conquering Medea, he united the empires and he left the Medean empire to be really free. They, they actually enjoyed equal rights to the Persians. So this was not, they didn't become slaves or anything like that. He was a very, he was much, very much a diplomat. He didn't believe in uh, making people, uh, especially large swaths of people, servants to him, and would much rather have a happier people on the whole than, um, he was kind of a populist in that sense, just would much rather have just a happy people than have people that were subject to him. And so he, obviously, playing that kind of statesman sort of game, made him a, a, a genius. So it, it really not only made a strong, for a strong empire, but then when he united Medea underneath him, he was able to turn on Babylon. And when he, when he decided, he walked in in 539 and just defeated Babylon outright. In many cases, Babylon was opening their doors to him and just going, we're, we're not going to fight you. We recognize we can't. So there was some uh, skirmishes, and the king of Babylon died in the process, but um, beyond that, I mean, people just kind of opened their doors to him. And so when he got in there, because of his statesmanship and the ways that he even thought about ruling people, the slaves that Babylon had made over the years were of really no interest to him. Again, he would much rather have a happy people than people who were held there against their will, because that just to him meant, well, that, that was just an uprising waiting to happen. And so he just decided, whatever, just dispatch with all of these people that were held captive. And he did that along the way. So when he came into Babylon, and it, it, it just, as luck would have it, you know, coincided 
with Jeremiah's prophecy of when the Jews would be released from captivity, uh, Cyrus happened to, wouldn't you know, about that same time walk in and defeat Babylon and then look to the Jewish slaves and go, you guys are of no interest to me. Not only does he release them from Babylon, but he actually pays them to go and issues an edict that says, I not only want you to go, but I want you to build a temple to Yahweh. Because the way Cyrus figures, as the diplomat who kind of plays all gods, essentially, it's always a safe bet in his mind to have every god in your favor. I don't know which one's the right one, but let's just throw money at all of them and hope one of them is right, right, is kind of his way of thinking. So you can see why he says, look, in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, go and build a temple uh, to Yahweh and tell him Cyrus sent you, you know, is kind of the idea along the way, you know. And so, so they do. So, but w- what's going to happen, though, is they, they get back here, and remember, they, they come back to town with not tons of people in tow, certainly not all the ones that they left with. And you've got to remember, a lot of these people grew up in Babylonian captivity, and some of them, especially the best and the brightest, they don't know any different than this. I mean, even Daniel and some of his friends were the best and the brightest at the time they were taken, and they're very young, you know, when they were taken. So they, I mean, I'm, I, I would bet, if we don't get an age, but they're young men, so probably 12, 13, 14 maybe, they're, they're leaving. And so if you grow up for 50 years or however long you're in captivity from the time you're a teenager, you just really don't know much different, you know? And so um, most of them wanted to stay. This was the life they knew. There was, it was prosperity there. And then you're asking them to move out onto the frontier where there is nothing but destruction. And there's just not a lot of appeal to do that. And so you, we're going to find that it's just not as easy as they, they maybe hoped it would be or thought it would be for many reasons. So in the seventh month, under the leadership of Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king, the newly returned Jewish exiles built an altar on the ruins of the old one on the Temple Mount, and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time since the exile. So let's, let's look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and we can see where that happens. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it was written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all, at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. So, um, you know, as Solomon had before, remember when Solomon first uh, built the temple, um, he collected all these building materials from Tyre, especially, 
Uh, I think Hiram, king of Tyre, sent him tons of building materials. Um, Sidon, he collected a lot of cedar and various other things. Um, again, the people reached out similarly to start construction on the house of the Lord. They laid the foundations there, it says, in the second month of the following year, which would have been about 536. And all of this, we see, is under priestly um, you know, oversight. Look at, look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters for food, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians uh, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, so they cobbled together all of this stuff. They begin to... Um, you know, kind of get together the materials to start building the temple. They have the commission from, uh, from Cyrus to go ahead and do that and get all the money together and everything like that to build this temple. So they have all the permission that they need. But once this is done, um, and they start to kind of build some sort of, you know, construction of a foundation, obviously this leads to a lot of celebration. We have an altar, we have sacrifices again, um, we have forgiveness of sin, we have atonement, we have the celebration of feasts and festivals. And remember, you know, all of these feasts and festivals that the Jews are celebrating, they, it's so deeply ingrained in their tradition, for one, but all of this is God's way of anticipating the Messiah. So um, you, you kind of have to read the Old Testament as training ground. It, it, it functions very much that way, and the New Testament authors will help you to understand that is that all of these feasts and festivals are preparation. They are all preparation. So the Day of Atonement, what does that teach the children of Israel? Forgiveness of sin. You, you need forgiveness of sin. And how does it come about? By death. You have to have forgiveness of sin, and the way it comes about, by death. Well, what about that sacrifice helps me to, to learn that? Well, it's young, it's perfect, in every way, it's spotless. It's a spotless lamb that has to be slain. Uh, and on and on, right? All, all of these. And then what about, the, what about the Passover? What does that tell? What does that help them understand? Well, the original celebration is the blood on the doorpost. And it, it, the angel of death is passing over. God is not, is not judging them. His judgment is passing over them because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Um, so the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which is what they're celebrating here, um, there is a tradition that begins to develop over time where they, it, the Feast of Booths is them going out into the wilderness and actually their journey. As God prepares for, for them this journey, He also supplies their need along the way. And so the, the Jews will celebrate this you know, uh, festival of booths where they actually prepare booths and they live in them, tents, as it were. And as they kind of model the journey through the wilderness. Well, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they're actually understanding that uh, this journey that's being prepared for them is God supplying their needs with living water. He is giving to them water in the wilderness. And so they develop this tradition of going down to the pool of Siloam and taking water out of the pool and pouring it on the altar. When Jesus comes onto the scene in John chapter 7, it's the festival of booths. And John tells us it's the festival of booths. The priests will take the people and they'll lead a procession all the way down to the pool of Siloam. They'll get the, the water out of a cup. They'll go up to the temple. They'll pour it on, on top of the altar. And it, it symbolizes water streaming forth, provided by God uh, to nourish the people coming from the temple. And it, it model, it's modeled after Ezekiel's temple. 
Well, on the seventh day of that celebration, they do it seven times. They go down seven times to the pool of Siloam, and they come back up, and they, pull, they pour the water on the altar. And John tells us Jesus waits till that day, and as they're pouring the water on the altar, he says, if anyone would come to me, out of their heart would flow streams of living water. Right? So he's, he's telling them, the Festival of Booths, this whole thing that y'all are doing, it's preparing you for me. That's what it's leading you to. So everything in the Old Testament is one big training ground. So when the, when the people get back together, they're understanding that this is something God has given them, not simply just, here, you need to obey this. But it's, this is what you need to be trained by. This is what you need to be understood and understand and, and taught by. So it's very important that they get together and they begin celebrating these things over and again. So um, they celebrate, obviously, the fact that um, that they have established the, the offerings again, that they've been, cele- they've been uh, able to celebrate the, the Feast of Booths and things like that. And they've begun putting these things together. And when they do so, they recite uh, some of what the hymn that David had composed on the occasion where he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle on Mount Zion. So uh, we saw him do that in Samuel, but there is a, a related passage in Chronicles that, where he writes a hymn uh, of celebration about this. So let's read that in Ezra 3, 10 to 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, quote, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And then this is in Chronicles, this is the citation of David's, part of David's psalm, where that they had quoted, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, the celebration didn't last long. Remember, there's some young bucks, probably some traditionalists, come from traditional families, conservative families maybe, who taught them growing up, this, these are the ways of the Lord, this is what we do as Jewish people and things like that. And when it came time to move back to Israel, they said, you know, yes, let's do it, we're following after the Lord. And so they went. They lay this foundation, and they're celebrating. Hey, we, we've got, we got it laid. But there's also some older people who remember what it used to be like. And they're there too. So they see the uh, foundations laid of this new temple, and they see that the foundations of this new temple paled by comparison with that of Solomon's original temple. And so they begin to cry like big babies (laughs) over what it used to be like and what it looks like now. Look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. 
This is just, I think this, is, this should put the death nail in nostalgia. This is one of the, <laughs> this is one, this is one of the downfalls of nostalgia is, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm sure Solomon's temple was impressive, and I'm sure the foundation that they just laid was not that impressive. But nostalgia can be really deadly because what they're failing to realize is that God has saved them from exile. And the temple has been destroyed, yes, but he's brought them back to the land. And it's that memory of what things used to be like that produces the lament. What's kind of sad here is that it's not the sin that led them to exile and the destruction of the temple that leads them to the lament, but the actual sin of what it used to be like. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a huge, obviously, issue for them, and, and one they're probably not going to get over uh, very quickly. We see that they don't get over. But this is where I think the story takes a turn. So up to this point, that everything has been, okay, Maybe it doesn't look like Solomon's temple, but everything has been going more or less right up to this point. They have been released by Cyrus. Fantastic. They have had all their stuff returned that the Babylonians took. They've been given money and supplies, everything that they need to make the journey back. They've begun building and they've laid the foundation. Yes, it doesn't look like Solomon's temple, but they're making progress. And remember, we're like 536 when they lay the, te- the, the foundations. They're released in like 538-ish, somewhere around there, 538 or 537. And so they, they're, what, two years in at most, considering the journey and all that kind of stuff, and they've already got a foundation laid. And this is where things begin to stall. There is a group of Samaritans, which you, you, you probably remember the Samaritans from the New Testament. And remember that the Samaritans are the, the towns or the, the, the area right in between. You've got the southern region where Jerusalem is. Their people from Galilee, where Jesus is, are constantly making journeys down to Jerusalem. And to do so, they have to go through the land of the Samaritans. So the Galilean region is up here by the Sea of Galilee. The uh, Jerusalem and Judea is down here by the Dead Sea. And in between is the Samaritan region. And, and you probably know that in, the, in John chapter 4, the Samaritans, well, especially the woman at the well, they're not looked at favorably. There's times where the disciples go, you want us to call down fire from heaven? We'll kill these people if you want us to, Jesus. And um, so they're not happy with the Samaritans. They don't like the Samaritans. In uh, Luke, there is the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus uses a Samaritan to flip the story on its head and basically play on their natural hatred of the Samaritans. But why is it that the Jews hate the Samaritans? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One big reason is that when the first exile happened, remember 722 B.C., Assyria comes in and takes the northern kingdom out, and when they do, he takes some of them into captivity, the best and the brightest. He leaves the kind of riffraff behind. And then he takes people from Assyria and from other regions and places them in the northern region to intermarry and essentially have children with the leftover Jews that are in that region. So the Samaritans become something of a mixed race. And as such, they also developed a pagan-ish religion. It kind of looked like Judaism, It sort of had a flavor of Judaism. They kind of 
held on to something similar of the Bible, though they only read the first five books of the Old Testament. But it was pagan in every other respect. So, essentially for a Jew in the first century, they're looking at the Samaritans as people who were compromisers. You not only didn't go into exile with everybody else, but you also married the people that took your brothers captive. And then you perverted the religion of our God to be something completely different. Okay. So the Samaritans approach the Jews. They see this temple being built. And they approach the Jewish people in Ezra's day. And they say, hey, we'll help. We'd be glad to. Look at what happens. 4, 1 to 2. Now, when the adversaries, you can tell how well this is going to go <laughs> by how they're introduced. <laughs> when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they returned, that the returned exiles were building the temple, a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esardon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. <laughs> so, <laughs> their fathers, essentially, that they intermarried with. So, they, they approach and they're like, hey, we would, we would be happy to help. Uh, let us join with you in, in helping. Uh, but, obviously, uh, recognizing that this is a group of scallywags, um, and their religious system was something resembling a cult. Um, they, and, and also probably, let's be honest, they had a little bit of bigotry probably in their heart and hatred for this group that was already there, I'm sure. Uh, the Judean leaders declined their help. And so, naturally, once they got rejected, they decided, okay, well, we'll play the bureaucratic nightmare game. You ever been subject to bureaucratic nightmare? <laughs> so here, you're about to read it. Okay, look at uh, Ezra, Ezra 4, 3 to 6. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Osiris, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So they began to play, uh, I think I skipped ahead, didn't I? They began to play this bureaucratic uh, nightmare game where they harassed them for 16 years. So from 536 and the initial construction all the way up till 520, Everything was slowed down by bureaucracy, essentially. They could no longer progress because the government officials were saying, you know, I'm not sure. Do you have the right? I lost your petition. 
I, I couldn't, I didn't see it in the stack there. It got misplaced somewhere, and it conveniently just never moves up to the top. And so, uh, here's what they said. So, look at uh, Ezra 4, uh, 7 to 16. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithrada and Tabil and the rest of the associates uh, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reham, the commander of Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Reham, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province of the Babylonian, or beyond the river. This is the copy of the letter they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Doesn't that just sound like a, like a goody two-shoes and an Agatha Kravitz looking out the window and going, <laughs> you know, <laughs> did you see what she was wearing? Um, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, it just, it just reads that way. It's some, so there's comedy in the Bible, all right? Um, so, uh, one thing leads to another. 16 years of bureaucracy passed by, of letter writing like this, and just campaigns to, you know, prolong the, the people. And uh, around the time, finally, as it's getting to the end, the prophet Haggai began to urge the people to put aside their own selfish interest and undertake the work of the temple without further ado. So what, what you have to understand, too, is it's not really the bureaucracy. It's not 16 years of bureaucracy. It's a small part of bureaucracy until it leads to people just getting complacent and going, what's the use? Right, and throwing up your hands, and we can't do anything about this. So then, after a while, they just sort of drop it, and lacking the motivation to actually make progress, and looking at this measly little foundation, and this kind of piddling little thing that they've got going, and hey, we're still able to do sacrifices, and hey, we're still able to do this and that. You know, one thing leads to another, and they lack motivation to actually do it. So this is the point where the prophet Haggai comes along at the end of the Old Testament, and begins to provoke the people, and say, look, Get off your couches, stop watching Judge Judy, and start building your temple like we're supposed to, right? So Haggai 1, 4 to 9. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses 
while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, does so to put them into a bag with holes. That's an image, isn't it? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So, pretty daunting little critique there of the people. They took care of their own houses, and after the, whatever, bureaucracy of the year or so, they started just saying, well, let's just build our own homes, and let's take care of ourselves. And the Lord is like, I'll tear it down again if you don't get to work. So, uh, they kind of have their, their, uh, their impetus to keep going. So as a result of Haggai's, uh, probably anyway, as a result of Haggai's prodding about this time, the Jews start to get to work. And so when they start to get to work, here comes the bureaucracy again. The Samaritans haven't forgotten the fact that they were spurned some time ago. And so they appeal to a man named Tatani, the governor of basically the whole region of the Euphrates, who's operating on behalf of, uh, you know, Persia and the Medo-Persians, and their hope is again to stall the work. And so Tatani is sort of the chief bureaucrat and middle management, and he comes in and he looks over the, the area and with all of the rest of his bureaucrats, and he kind of asks some questions of the elders, and he thinks to himself, I don't, I'm not so sure about this. And of course, his palms have probably also been greased, so to speak, by some of the Samaritans and uh, kind of been, you know, poked in that direction. And so he composes a letter back to Darius, who is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire at the time. Remember, he's the one that put Daniel in the lion's den. Okay, same Darius. Um, and he questioned whether or not it was legal for these Jews to begin building in this territory. And so he writes this. We have the recording of this. Look, Ezra uh, 5, 17. Um, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, this is, I just kind of cut to the chase on this, but he says, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So essentially, he had gone, and this was his description in the letter that I, I kind of got to the bare bones of it, but basically, he went to the elders and he starts asking them questions and saying whether, asking whether or not they have permission. Who gives you the right to, to build this temple here? Who gave you the authority to do this? And they tell him, well, Cyrus, king of Persia, commissioned us to come and build this temple. And so he says, well, we'll just see about that, right? And so he writes back and he says, well, why don't you just make a search and let's, let's see if Cyrus actually did make this decree. Well, not only did that happen... But Darius sends his emissaries to go make a search of uh, all the records and find all the things that were said about that by Cyrus. And he found Cyrus's decree, and that causes Darius to reissue an edict 
for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, Darius, the next, this king, obeying an edict of the previous king. I mean, when does that happen in a bureaucracy? Almost never. You might say this is divine intervention. I don't know. You know, perhaps some people would say that. Uh, so not only does he find the decree of Cyrus, but then he commanded Tatanai and his cronies not only to cease and desist from their interdiction, the interruption of the, of the building of the temple, uh, but also to pay whatever expenses might be accrued both in building and in the maintenance of public worship. Can you imagine that conversation when Tatanai comes back and goes, well, it turns out you do have the right to build here, and uh, here's a check with the signature of Darius on it, and, uh, and it's blank, so just write whatever number you want in there and let it fund your public worship. Listen to this decree here in Ezra 6, 6-12. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priest at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God, <laughs> may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Have you ever seen a bureaucrat write a letter like that? I mean, that, that is a blank check. And you might say that is superintended by the Lord above to make, under no uncertain terms, a decree to rebuild this house. So... It, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that the prophet says, get off your rear ends, stop watching your TVs, and start building the house of God, or I'm going to tear everything that you've got down. And when they start following the, the promises of God, there is provision along the way, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting how, how frequently we, he, we read these promises in the New Testament of, of Jesus saying, and whatever you ask for in my name, I'll give it. And we go... What? That isn't... Surely... So we start equivocating, right? We go, well, okay. Well, he doesn't mean anything, anything, right? But what you find is when you actually move out onto the frontiers of ministry and you begin actually doing really hard things with your life 
and you begin seeing the real needs that you have in ministry, God, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. I can't do this. I can't take care of this. You see that those needs are provided along the way. Sometimes that is care. Sometimes that is patience. Sometimes that is just a host of other things that he supplies. And sometimes you get those, those things provided for you, and you don't even realize their provision. And then you look back after you're on the other side of it, and you go, man, he just sort of took care of me along the way, right? And you have to get kind of on the other side before you ever see that. Well, maybe not so much in this case. They get out there, and they get just a, a decree written by the king. And who knows, maybe in the time they're going, okay, well, that, that worked out in our favor. And it, maybe it wasn't until later, I don't know, that they look back and they go, no, that was the hand of God actually writing that letter on, on our behalf. I don't know, but you tend to find that, and I think they're seeing that even now, and I think we should also see that. So, obviously, Zerubbabel the king, Joshua the high priest, um, they marshaled together this labor force to set about the work with renewed enthusiasm following the preaching of Haggai, and obviously Zechariah was a part of that too, and their recent legislative victory. So they start going to this, and it says in Ezra 6, 13-18, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the prince beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered uh, through the prophesying of Haggai and the, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Idu. And they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of, returned, uh, of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God, uh, of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for Israel, male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So things are getting off to a great start. They have renewed enthusiasm. You know, but it, it's not all... Uh, you know, glorious at the same time either. As the building began to take shape, it, it became really obvious, just like it was with the foundation, that what they have here is, is never going to amount to what it was in Solomon's day. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 6 all the way to chapter 9, you're going to see Solomon rebuilding the temple, dedicating the temple, the, just the impressive nature of the temple, laden with gold, uh, all kinds of designs on the inside to look and mimic the Garden of Eden. So much of it was so impressive. And here they've got this building that is, the foundation is not even as impressive as Solomon's at all. Uh, it is a temple. It is the second temple, Jerusalem, but it is, it is certainly not anything to write home about. Not only that, it's not laden with gold and things like that, like Solomon's temple was. And so there is a bit of disappointment that still lies in their hearts. But this is where I think we need to, as we read Haggai, and this is, you know, the hope of all of this was really to kind of help us to read the minor prophets. You have to remember where Haggai is situated. He's getting them to build the temple. He's, he's you know, encouraging them to build the temple after 16 years of layoff. 
But when they get disappointed by it, what they're disappointed by is, is what? It's appearance, right? What they're not disappointed by is that the glory of the Lord is not there. Think about that for just a second. When Moses builds the tabernacle and finishes it at the end of Exodus, what happens? The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and they can't even go in. Enter the book of Leviticus to lay out the laws in order for the high priest to enter in. When Solomon finishes the temple, what happens? You may not remember, but it's the same thing that happened in the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord fills the temple and they begin the sacrificing in order for the high priest to actually enter in. Here, the people build the second temple and they're crying about what it looks like. What they're not crying about is, wait a second, what happened to the glory of the Lord? When Ezekiel gets a vision of the destroyed temple in Ezekiel chapter 10, go back and read it. You're, I mean, obviously there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery in it and things like that. There'll be things that you kind of go, I don't understand that at all. That's fine. But if you read it, what you'll see is the glory of the Lord packs up from the temple and leaves. He gets out of Dodge. You know where he goes? Remember? He goes east of the temple on the mountain just east of the temple. You remember what that mountain's called? The mount called Olivet. Okay? The glory of the Lord packs up and leaves and stands out east of the temple. That's where Ezekiel begins to understand why the temple was destroyed. Is because these people are unfaithful to God. So their destruction of their temple is necessary. Right? So here's what Haggai helps them understand. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, so what is the promise here? Well, the promise is that it will not always be this way. You're crying about what it looks like. You're not even thinking about the glory that's not filling the temple. But I'm going to tell you one day, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to fill this place with my glory. So much so that the nations will stream to it. They will give pay to it. We're going to see this this weekend in the sermon this weekend out of 2 Samuel chapter 8. The people paying tribute to David as he conquers. The Gentiles paying tribute. So God is saying, look, there will be a day when all of the nations, the Gentiles, are paying tribute to this place. Because my glory is here. Right? Okay. Let's keep going. So he says, though the temple will be rebuilt, it is clear that the fulfillment of the word of the Lord through Haggai wouldn't find fulfillment until his glory appeared to shake the heavens and the earth and over, overthrow the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. Now, now, hold on to that thought. So he says, one day I'm going to fill this place, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, I'm going to fill this place with my glory, and all of the nations will bring 
uh, their treasures here, okay? Listen to what Haggai then goes on to say in verse 20 to 23, when this would come about. Pay very close attention. The word of the Lord, this is uh, Haggai 2, 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Uh Uh-oh, it's coming. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What is he promising to Zerubbabel? Now, Zerubbabel, spoiler alert, is going to die before this is ever fulfilled. Is he promising to Zerubbabel that Zerubbabel is going to be the one to see this happen? Obviously not. What he's promising is to reinstall David's line on the throne, and he's going to make his line, the king, like his signet ring. Why would he be like a signet ring of God? What is a signet ring? It's authority. So you're going to have your line as king, I'm going to install when I shake the heavens and fill this place with my glory. And I'm going to make your line, you king, like a signet ring, meaning I'm going to give you authority and dominion over everything. And whatever I say you're going to do and whatever you do is the rule of the land. That's what's going to happen. That's what he's promising to Zerubbabel. Okay? And what is going to happen as a result of that? What does he say? What is going to happen? What is it? As a result of Zerubbabel becoming his authority, what's going to happen to the nations? They're going to be overthrown. All the crowns are going to be taken away. Right? When I install the king, my king, from David's line, on the throne, all the authority of the nations is going to be stripped away. So here's what happens in the New Testament, and this is why Matthew 23 is incredibly important. Matthew 23, do you remember what happens in Matthew 23? Matthew 23, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, and he's gone to the temple. And He's standing there in the temple, and everything, this is 23 and 24, everything looks impressive. It's the second temple, which we haven't gotten to yet, when, they, when, when Ro- the Rome builds it to its prestige again. And uh, so he, he walks out, and he, he says, uh, the disciples say, look at this place. Jesus has just gone to Jerusalem and said, this whole thing is going to be overthrown. And the disciples go, are you kidding me? Look at this place. It's so impressive. Look at the bricks. They're taller than a man. And Jesus says, every single one of these stones is going to be turned asunder. It's going to be laid to the ground. In the previous chapter, in 23, Jesus had pronounced woe on the city. And where was he standing when he did this? On the Mount of Olives. Standing out east of the temple, he's looking over the city, and he's pronouncing woe on the city. 
this whole place is going to be destroyed. So here is the person whom John said, We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Israel, in the days of Jesus, had God's glory dwelling in their temple. He walked in and he turned over the tables and he judged the place. Why? Because they had stopped worshiping God. So he goes out east of the temple, stands on the Mount of Olives, and pronounces a woe over the Jews and over their temple and tells them that their building is going to be torn down again, this time by the Romans, just like it was by Babylon. And to which the disciples say, how could it be? Look at this impressive structure. And he says, it's going to happen. Pagan armies are going to surround this place, and they're going to tear it down brick by brick, and I'm going to let them do it. My glory is going, in other words. But this time, the glory of the Lord doesn't disappear. In fact, it disappears for three days, and then it comes back up from the grave. And this time, things are different. Because this time, when Jesus comes to his disciples on another mountain, some of them are doubting, is this really the resurrected Christ? And this is what he says to them. Listen to this, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is promising them several things. First of all, he's saying, I, am, I now have authority over all. The promise that was made in Haggai that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and he is going to overthrow all the kingdoms of the nations and strip away their crowns. What Jesus is saying is fulfilled here is exactly what was promised there in Haggai. It's what was promised in Daniel chapter 7, that the power and authority and the structures of this world have been taken away and have all been given to Jesus. The Jews then are going to see that their authority has been stripped away when their temple comes down brick by brick, just like they did back in, in the Babylonian days, right? It's all going to be torn down. But this time what's different is the temple's not going to be replaced, and the glory of the Lord is not going to dwell in a temple made by man. In this instance, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How's he going to do that? Well, we flash forward to the book of Acts, where they're all standing around praying and going, I don't know how this is going to happen. And all of a sudden, a sound like a mighty rushing wind comes and, and rushes in. The Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in them, and tongues as of fire appear over their heads. Now, why would tongues of fire appear over their heads? Because in the temple, there is a lampstand that stands there that's supposed to always be lit. It's supposed to always have tongues of fire over it. That's the, the, the priest's job, is to trim the wick and make sure that the lampstand is always lit. And that lampstand represents God's ongoing presence with the nation of Israel. If the lamp goes out, it's a sign that God is not present with them. So the priest is to tend to the wick. But here, in Acts... Not only does the Holy Spirit come to take up residence in His people, but the tongues of fire appear overhead to make sure everybody knows this is exactly what's going on. The glory of the Lord has not disappeared. In fact, the glory of the Lord is now taking up residence inside His people. And so, Jesus says, don't come and see anymore. This is not a religion of come and see. This is a religion of go and tell. I am now taking up residence in you. You are a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Wherever you go, there the Holy Spirit is. There the presence of God is with you. So he can promise to them in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Haggai's prophecy, they're, they're looking at this temple, this shabby little temple, and they're crying over its looks and its appearance. And God is saying, I'm going to dwell here again. What they don't realize is that it's going to come through the person of Christ and through his body, the church, as they move out into the world sharing the gospel with people. And when they do, those people encounter the very presence of God as the Spirit opens their eyes to salvation. This is how evangelism works. You tell the gospel as a representative, a signet ring of God. And as you do, exercising His dominion, His authority, and spreading His glory around the earth, people hear, they see, and they respond. Are there people who are antagonists in this story? Like the Samaritans? who want to delay everything and push everything down the road or execute his people? Of course there are. But there are also people who see the worship of God going on in the body of Christ, and they believe in the gospel, and they worship him too. So our job now is as representatives of God to go out and to share the gospel and preach as a fulfillment even of the minor prophets. You see what's, what's happening here in the bridge of the Old Testament? The, you can... Look, all the prophets can be read this way. The whole Bible, if you're not reading the Old Testament and getting to how this relates to Jesus, you're not reading it right. You've stopped too short. All of it is going to come back to its fulfillment in Christ and then ultimately what that actually means for his church body. Yes? Tracking so far? Questions? Yes. Yeah. 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 When he what he commands, he provides. Yeah. I, I, it is necessary to uh, that that is faith is actually is actually doing it, right? So there is the promise, I will be with you always, and there is the promise, His mercies are made new every morning. And there, is, there are other millions of promises just like this, right, that you'll find throughout the Bible. But you, you won't see that those are true. They will be true whether you sit on your couch or not. But you won't know that they're true until you actually go, right? Then you will see just how new His mercies are every morning, right? Then you will see how, how much He is with you through it all. But, but you won't ever see that sitting on the couch and not pushing yourself to the limits. And, and what I mean is really getting to points of ministry to other people where it gets very difficult, where it gets hard, where you want to quit. Unless you actually get to that point, you won't understand what His mercies are made new every morning actually means. Until you're rejected when you share the gospel or until you minister to someone who is in desperate need and who just 
saps all the energy out of you and just drags you down, or until you, you know, encounter those really difficult times, you won't understand what that means, I am with you always. When he says, I, I will put my words in your mouth, so don't worry about what you're going to say in the time that you need to say it. He promised that to the apostles. I will give you the words that you need to say. You won't how could you ever experience that, the fulfillment of that promise unless you got to a point where you had to say something, right? You won't experience that unless, you, unless you're standing with, next to an unbeliever or, or, I don't know, in a court or something. Unless you're standing in a place where, you, where that promise needs to be fulfilled right then, you won't understand what that means. You can't if you're just watching Judge Judy. Right? I mean, it just doesn't work. So, you know, it doesn't mean that his promises are, are null and void. Far from that. It means that you're not, it's not being demonstrated for you because you're being lazy. You know? I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm just saying. Be faithful. Let's be, let's be faithful. All right. Let's, 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 let's pray. Hey, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you know, I just put the shoe out there. If, you, if it fits you, then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if it's causing a blister, I'm just saying, you know, put some socks on. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we certainly pray that your word have its effect, that it bear fruit in our lives, that, um, that even as we just sit here and think about the various connections that your prophets are laying out in the Old Testament that point us so uniquely to the person and work of Jesus, that we might just be able to sit back and just be in awe of that. And even if it, we just walk away with an assurance and a confidence that the Bible is true and that that, couldn't, that connection could not possibly have just been happenstance or accident, um, but just an assurance that your word is true and that you fulfill your promises. What a tremendous thing that would be to walk out with that. So I pray you would give us that. Um, but further, that we would begin to see Christ for who he really is and, and really understand what Paul means when he says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That we might be uh, exuberant over the fact that he is our Lord and our Savior and that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he saved us, that it might bolster our worship of him and our desire to come in on Sunday mornings and sing praises and then throughout the week sing his praises and share a message of the gospel with others. I pray that you would produce that in through the life of our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.